Good morning, Terra family. I was tempted to keep my puffy jacket on, but usually it's a few degrees warmer up here on the stage. So, um, uh, Christina Wyman had uh, instructed me to let you know in case you didn't see the signage on the way in or were confused about what Terra Kids programs were open today, that Quest and Nursery are open and available. So if you were looking to take advantage, please know that both of those classrooms are open for today, and you can head on down right now. So it's been a, been a while since we've kind of been in any kind of a rhythm in terms of a series, and even now we're not jumping back into Matthew, which is where we have by and large been over the last couple of years. We'll be finishing up Matthew starting again I think uh, basically the beginning of March through Easter, and then actually even the Sunday after Easter, we'll be in Matthew 28, the last chapter of that gospel. Right now we're going to be entering into a six to seven part series on the promises of God, which I've been looking forward to. So what are promises? What's a promise? Um, It's something, you know, we know well. We We know the word. We could probably define it, but it's worth saying anyway. A promise is a commitment or an assurance to be something, to do something, uh, a promise that something is going to happen, usually one person directing that promise to another, okay? That's what a promise is. So then, if we're talking about the promises of God in this series, what are those? Well, it's the same thing, except the assurance or the commitment that is being made is God himself, to be something, to do something, or to promise that something is going to happen. Now, there are a lot of promises of God in the Bible. One author and pastor counted 7,147 promises in the Bible. And that count is probably a little bit different depending upon who's doing the counting, which we'll talk about why in a moment. But just think about that. If you you do the averages, your average Bible is probably somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 pages depending upon font size and format and all that. That's at, that's at least three promises per page in your Bibles. Do you ever read your Bibles with that filter before you that there are probably bunches of promises from God to me on this page? It's a good thing to do. Now that may surprise you that there would be so many promises that some may come up with as they count them in their Bibles, but there's a reason for that. Some of them are explicit, just straightforward and really clear. Uh, like, I will never leave or forsake you, which is what we're going to be talking about today with the promise of God's presence. That's a straightforward, explicit promise. But many of the promises of God are implicit. They're implied. They're not as directly stated and clear. I literally just flipped open my New Testament to a page in the Bible and thought, I'm going to look for a more implicit promise of God. I turned to John 15, and I read Jesus' words, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And I think if we understand the metaphor that Jesus is using here for himself and for the Father, we have a promise about Jesus himself and also about his Father, what they are like and what they do for us. As Jesus, uh, with Jesus as the vine that he refers to himself as, He's saying he will provide the nourishment that you need for your spiritual life and to bear fruit. When you actually understand what it means for him to be the vine. Now when it comes to the father as a vine dresser, there's also a promise here. Two, really. Jesus goes on in the next verse to say, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
Okay, that's something a vine dresser would do in a vineyard. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's a positive and a negative promise that is made here. Negatively speaking, as a vine dresser, the father will separate from Christ those who over the course of their lives never bear any fruit and so prove never to have been his true disciples. On the positive side, he will also lovingly bring about circumstances, trials and tribulations and situations, even ones that you may find to be painful or unwanted in your life. In the short run, because that's what a vine dresser does, clips off those, those, those parts that are actually inhibiting growth, so that in the long run you bear more fruit, which is more Christ-likeness, which leads to more joy. Point being, God's promises are everywhere in Scripture. Some of them are explicit and clear and stated straightforwardly. Others are more implicit. But anything that's declared in your Bible to be true about God, what he has done, or something he's going to do, you can receive as a promise. Now, a quick caveat to that is that we do have to be careful that we don't take a scripture out of context and then wrongly apply it to ourselves, which is easy to do. And the reason why that's important we don't do that is because if we wrongly understand something that God's word says as a promise to us, then we could become disillusioned if that doesn't actually come to fruition. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of that. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God is speaking to King Solomon, and he says to him here, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now this is often a scripture that is quoted and claimed by some Christians as a a promise that if we just pray hard enough, God has promised to restore our country to a Christian nation to the glory that we once had as a Christian nation. Okay, I'm just speaking on behalf of uh, of some who might utilize that verse in that way. Now listen, he might. (laughs) Certainly we should be praying for our nation. Certainly we have hope that there will be revival in our country and in our world. We should pray that way. There are passages of scripture like 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. Pray for kings and all who are in high places. God wants us to do that. We hope for revival in our land. But is this... Is this promise that is made to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14 a promise that we are meant to be able to claim today in the same exact way it was meant for ancient Israel? And I would say not quite. First of all, who was God speaking to? He was speaking to Solomon, who was the king of Israel. What had he just finished doing? He just finished building the temple, all right, which was the epicenter for God's dwelling place amongst his people in the Old Testament. Are there differences between then and now, for sure, right? First of all, Israel was a theocracy. It was truly one nation under God. God was their king. Solomon was only king because God permitted that because that's what the people demanded. God was always meant to be Israel's one and true king. Furthermore, God gave his people Israel a physical land with physical boundaries to operate and dwell within. Why? Because That nation in that physical dwelling place on God's earth was meant to be a light to the rest of the nations of the world that would come to them and see what the God of Israel did in their midst. Now, there's a term that I've found, terms that I've found helpful to distinguish between the way that God's strategy for evangelism happens in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. 
So there's centripetal uh, evangelism, centripetal evangelism in the Old Testament, which is where things kind of spin from outside in. So the countries were meant to come and observe what God was doing in the midst of the people of Israel, in, in Israel. And then there's centrifugal evangelism, which is more of the New Testament uh, style of evangelism, in which um, evangelism spins out from a central point or multiple central points to the rest of the world. So there's a completely different philosophy and strategy of reaching the world, of being a light for the world that God had between the Old and the New Testaments. See, today, with the church, there is no longer a temple, a singular physical place, epicenter of God's dwelling place. Now God dwells in his people, individually and collectively as a church, wherever they may be, no matter the geographic boundaries, wherever they are in the world. It's a centrifugal evangelism. We're all little lights spinning out to the rest of the world from wherever we are. Okay, so zooming back in now to Second Chronicles. When God promises here to heal their land, This included things like deliverance from drought and pestilence in the land itself, as well as uh, healing through bringing the exiles of Israel back to these geographic boundaries, because that was the way in which then Israel could serve as a light to the world. It's just a very different uh, covenant and iteration of evangelism in the Old Testament versus the New. Again, should we pray for our country? Absolutely. But can we use a scripture like that to claim the promise that if we do pray for our country, God will heal our land in the same way and in the same sense as Old Testament Israel? I don't, I don't think so. Right? That's just an example that, I meant, uh, that I'm giving you here today to say context matters. We need to understand while God's promises are everywhere, we have to understand within their context what they're actually saying. And That happens through careful study of the scriptures. You may not be a scholar, have gone to seminary. You don't have to. Just read a passage in its context. Then have discussions with other Christians around you. That's why we have tribes at Terra Nova. And then you can better ensure that we're rightly understanding and receiving the promises of God. Now, why are they significant? Why are the promises of God so significant? Well, two thoughts before we dive into our specific promise for today. Number one, they're significant and they're powerful because they're the antidote to evil and temptation in our spiritual journey in this world. They're the antidote. Okay, we live in a fallen and broken world, broken by sin. And in fact, one of the promises that Jesus actually gives us in John 16, 33 is that in this world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Do you highlight that one and get all excited when you see that? Oh, a promise of God. I'm going to suffer in this world. Probably not. But it's still a promise. Every day we will face difficulties, inefficiency in our work, suffering of various kinds, discouragement, setback, disease, hardships, accidents, betrayals, and so forth. Every day. But when we know the promises of God, When we lean into them, they serve as the antidote. They serve as this counteracting agent to all of that. We can cling to them as realities that are true even when we're facing something that currently feels like the opposite. In that sense, the promises of God are meant to provide life when life is feeling like death. I love the psalmist's words along these lines in Psalm 119 verses 49 to 50, when he says, 
Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in affliction, tribulation, that your promise gives me life. That's the purpose and the point of the promises that God makes to us. Now, that's the first thing. The promises are powerful because they're the antidote to temptation and evil. While we pilgrimage through this world in which we're truly just aliens longing for our heavenly home. Secondly, and related, but I wanted to spell it out a little bit more, they also provide a unique assurance. Promises are meant to provide assurance, right? But God's promises provide for you and I unique assurance, unlike anything else. Many of us have had people who make promises to us who have failed to come through. Even people we really trust, the ones you trust the most, cannot guarantee anything at the end of the day. All we can do is do our best to be faithful to fulfill the promises that we have made. I think of the frequent scenes in movies and TV shows where a husband vows or makes a promise to his wife or children, I will protect you, nothing will happen to you. Or goes off to battle or war or something like that and promises, I'll come back to you. I mean, the sentiment is right, but it's a lie. They can't guarantee that. It always drives me nuts. It's so prideful. But it's different with God. Only God can be counted on when he makes a promise to come good on that promise every time. And the power of that, that assurance that God's promises are true, produces in us things like resilience in the midst of our suffering, courage to face opposition, to things like temptation and fear. Because you can have absolute confidence that God will be faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. So that's why we're doing this mini-series. That's why God has given us his promises, in part anyway. And during this series, we'll take a look at six or seven different promises, including God's promise of his presence, which we'll look at today, the welcoming promise of God, the promise that God hears his people, he listens, that he forgives, that he will help you, that he will exalt you, and that he will restore you. And again, that's just a small sampling of so many other promises that God has given us. So let's turn to this first promise we're going to look at in this series, the promise of God's presence. I think I can argue here this morning that this promise is rooted in the most fundamental purpose that God has for you and I, which is to be with him, for him to be with us. We see this throughout the Bible. We see it established in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis There's an implication there that the level of intimacy with Adam and Eve Eve was such that we're told God was walking among them. I don't know if that was little or not, but it was meant to point to this intimate sense of presence that God had established with his people early on. So that you look at the bookend, that's creation before sin. Revelation, which paints us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, tells us this is still God's purpose ultimately. In Revelation 21.3, we read that the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. It's God's purpose. And it's not just at creation or recreation for that matter. When you read the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a teaching tool that's been around in the church for hundreds of years. The question is, many of you are familiar, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? 
To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do you enjoy somebody without being present with them? It's implied right within the very first and probably most important question asked in in a teaching tool that has been around for uh, nearly 500 years in the church. Clearly, this is God's intent for us to know and enjoy his presence, not even just at creation and recreation, but now in the psalmist's words, which Bernadette led us through during worship in Psalm 1611, when he says, in your presence is fullness of joy. That wasn't just a looking forward to his, the future heavenly hope that he had, which he was. It was also a reality that he was enjoying in the present, okay? So this promise of God's presence to us is rooted in his ultimate purpose for us. We were made to be with God. We were made to experience and enjoy his presence. Yet it tends to be so elusive on this side of eternity because we live in a broken world. And that is why this promise from God to be with us and to never leave us or forsake us is so precious. One of the most precious and treasured promises that we have in the Bible. So where does it come from? We see different iterations of this promise God makes to his people, but one of the most powerful and early on examples of this is with Joshua, in the book of Joshua. This is the sixth book in the Old, Te- the sixth book in the Old Testament of, of your Bible, right? So the first five are known as the Pentateuch, Penta, five. Those were written by Moses. Joshua is the sixth book. So he appears on the scene at a point in Israel's history where God has brought his people from slavery out of Egypt. By the hand of Moses. Moses led the people of Israel around the wilderness for 40 years. They had yet to enter the promised land. We talked about a little bit earlier. The land God had promised Israel to dwell in and be a light to the nations. Moses dies. So guess who has to step up to the plate? Who's given that responsibility by God? It's Joshua. Joshua is Moses' successor. And he's called now to the responsibility of leading the people of God into, the, into the, to the promised land. And it wouldn't be a walk in the park. If you know the story of Joshua and the people of God, one of the very first things he had to do is cross a raging river. Right? The Jordan was flooded at that time of the year when God called them to pass through it and into a land in which they would be faced with all kinds of oppositions from foreign nations that didn't want them there. So he'd have to be a military strategist and fight battles against those people. Not to mention he would have to continue to to lead the the fickle bunch that Moses had just led, which is why they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. This was a huge responsibility that Joshua was laden with. We probably don't have to be told how he felt, or at least was tempted to feel. Fear, afraid, anxious about what it would mean to lead a nation of a million people Fear of inadequacy to do that job. It's also implied in God's promise to Joshua in this moment that that was probably what he was feeling. And so this is kind of our main text for the day. Joshua chapter 1 verses 5 to 7. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. At this point of Moses, in a sense, having passed the baton on, although he died. So God having given Joshua that baton, he accompanies it with these words to Joshua. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. 
being careful to do all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, why would God have said these words to Joshua now? Right? Joshua, it's not as if he had an insignificant role prior to this. Right? He'd already been mentioned earlier on in the Bible as one of Moses' higher-ups. He was one of the chieftains that were selected, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to go and spy out the Promised Land. You may remember that story. Only two of, them came, two of the 12 came back with a positive report, encouraged that Israel could go in and occupy the land. It was Joshua and Caleb, right? Joshua was one of those guys. He'd already been given the mantle of leadership of a kind. So why is God giving these words to Joshua now? Even though he had carried a great burden of leadership of a kind before, he still had experienced some shelter from the greatest responsibility that he would have to take on in life by Moses. He had, Moses had served as kind of a, a buffer for Joshua. Moses had observed that unique role and responsibility of leading all of Israel with all the difficult decisions and the consequences of those decisions that would have to be made. Now that's Joshua's responsibility. Now the buck stops with him. But accompanied with that responsibility comes this promise from God directly to Joshua. God had made that promise, by the way, to Joshua before through Moses. But now he speaks directly to Joshua in a personal way. See, there's nothing like stepping out in faith into a new responsibility that God has called you to to intensify the reality of this promise in your life. So I want to encourage you, don't shy away from those opportunities. There may be something right now that's on the horizon of your life that you're questioning whether or not you want to go move into that may be something God has put before you as an opportunity for you to understand more deeply this promise of his presence to be with you and to never leave or forsake you. Oftentimes, when we step into greater responsibility, God will accompany that with a more personal rendition of this promise to you. Now, as we talked about a few minutes ago, context matters. So can we take a promise that was offered up to Joshua and apply it to ourselves? Well, the short answer to that question, I believe, is yes. So now, why? Because certainly, there was some uniqueness to this promise that was given by God to Joshua in light of his role as the leader of this great nation, right? God even says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So there was something particular to this role of leading Israel that was part of the reason why God was now making this promise to Joshua. Furthermore, the way in which God kind of normatively made his presence known to his people was a little different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. All right, The people in the Old Testament experienced the reality of this promise through the tabernacle or the temple. The temple was the, the permanent structure and dwelling place for God's presence once they moved into the promised land and kind of built up the, the city of Jerusalem. But the tabernacle was the place that was kind of a temporary setup and tear down structure as they wandered through the wilderness. Either way, God's presence was occupied in that place and the people were able to draw near to him in that physical location to worship him through sacrifices. So it was a little bit more impersonal in that sense in terms of how it worked generally in the Old Testament. More rarely do you see people like Moses and Joshua and David 
um, portrayed as enjoying God's presence in a much more personal, intimate way outside of the context of the tabernacle and the temple. That said, I believe that the scripture is clear that that kind of personal experience of God's promise and reality of God's promise and presence in your life was not just for Joshua, but that that promise is for you and I today as well. Part of the reason is through this change we see between the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and the New Covenant through Christ and the New Testament. Because what inaugurated the New Covenant? We just celebrated it at Christmas. The birth of Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. God drew nearer to us in the incarnation, God with us, than he had at any point in time before since creation, signifying an intensification of this promise to be with us. And then in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, as he drew near to his latter days, he promised to his disciples and to those who believed in him since then, you and I, in John 14, that when he departed, he wasn't going to leave us as what? Orphans. Speak up. I don't have great hearing. He wasn't going to leave us as orphans. And as we'll get to in a few months at the end of Matthew chapter 28, one of my favorite promises from the lips of Jesus at the end of that gospel is he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. How? He explains by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Because under the new covenant, through Christ, what has become the temple? Us, our bodies, collectively, the church is now the dwelling place for God where he takes up residence, no longer a physical temple made by the hands of men. And that's about as personal as it can get. So in that sense, yes, this promise is for us. That personal level of promise that God gave to Joshua is for us. But even more clear is when you read through the New Testament into the letters, the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 actually uses the identical language he cites from this passage in Joshua 1 and applies it to the church, and in turn to you and I today. Hebrews 13, five to six says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The author of Hebrews, is citing here from Joshua 1.5 and applying it to all believers in Christ. One of the helpful principles of how to understand your Bible is even when we don't have license to just cherry-pick some verse from the Old Testament without understanding it in its context to know if it's true for us, if an author of the New Testament takes it and applies it to us, you know that you're good. And that's what the author of Hebrews does here. It's interesting, I'll just note that the pairing of this instruction that precedes that promise to not be a slave to money or, uh, you know, or, or to just be content with what you have kind of seems a little bit odd. And then he gives the reason, because I, I will never leave you or forsake you. But it's really the same thing as what God was saying to Joshua. Because the promise that God is with us and will never leave us or forsake us is the reason why we don't have to fear anything, whether that be for Joshua this mantle of responsibility to lead Israel, or whether it be for the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, who is probably worrying about and afraid of where, God's provi- where, where provision was going to come from. And so they tried to secure that for themselves. 
So yes, this promise God made to Joshua is for us today. If you are in Christ, God's promise that he will never leave or forsake you is yours to own. So how do we apply that promise a little bit more practically to our lives? Two thoughts I want to leave you with as we move toward a close. First is this, the promise of, the promise of God's presence is both a fuel for your obedience and a fruit of your obedience. Let me talk about each of those in brief. When we look at Joshua's situation, it's really the former of those two things. Right? God promises to be with Joshua, to never leave or forsake him, um, and that fuels Joshua in courageously knowing and doing God's word. Okay? Again, God says, I will not leave or forsake you, Joshua. That's the fuel. To do what? To be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, has commanded you. See, a lot of what God writes to us in his word takes courage to live out. And the fuel to live those things out is this promise that he will be with you in your obedience and he will never leave or forsake you. Notice what his promise is not to Joshua in this instance. He doesn't say to Joshua, I promise that it will never feel like I'm absent from you while you're walking in obedience. That's not what he says. There undoubtedly were times, because Joshua was human, where he felt like God was nowhere to be found, where he felt like God had left him or forsaken him. But the good news is that promise that God made to him was not based upon how Joshua felt. Or put positively, as Joshua walked in obedience, that promise was true even if he didn't feel like it was true. Be thankful that the promises of God don't hinge upon whether you feel like they are true or not. They are rooted in the security of who he is, which is unchanging, and not in who we are, which is fickle in our feelings and dull in our spiritual sensitivity much of the time. That's not a slight to us, a knock on us. That's an encouraging word that your feelings don't dictate whether God's promises are true for you. I want to illustrate this with a, a little microcosm from my own life. I have two, well, three children, two that are old enough to actually do what I'm about to explain. Uh, my kids don't like going down into our basement now, that may sound creepier than it is. It's not that creepy. Those of you who have been to my house, we have a, um, a ranch-style house where you can walk through the garage and into a half-finished basement. The problem is, it's not an area we spend a lot of time in, and it's so removed from the rest of our house where we do much of our living that my kids, and especially my daughter, Dahlia, she doesn't want to go down there without mommy or daddy accompanying her. And so I will often oblige and go down with her and you know, in a moment of distraction, I'm still there. I may be in a different part of the basement. She will think I'm not there anymore. And she'll say, Daddy, where are you? Or, Daddy, don't leave me. The reality is I've never lost sight of her. She lost sight of me. This is like how it is with God so often. He's ever-present with you, even if you don't feel like that's true all of the time. His eye is always on us, even though sometimes you and I lose track of his presence. Okay, so first of all, the promise of God's presence to be with you is the fuel for your obedience, even if you don't feel like it's true all the time. That said, and this is kind of the mystery of God's word and how it works sometimes, 
It's equally true that the promise of God's presence is also the fruit of your obedience. Experientially realizing in your life the promise of God's presence is the fruit of obedience, at least normatively speaking. This is another principle that we see in God's word as well, that knowing and doing the word of God is the primary means by which he will awaken in you the reality that he is with you. For example, Jesus says to his disciples then and to us now in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, swimming in the waters of experiencing the reality of this promise that he is with us comes through knowing and doing the word of God. It's in obedience, as Jesus says, keeping God's commandments that God most profoundly manifests his presence to us. So on the one hand, the promise of God's presence is a fuel for our obedience, whether or not we feel like it's true. That was Joshua, right? But that promise also comes alive in us experientially as we follow him in obedience, which is what I mean by a fruit of obedience. Are you tracking? You can humor me by nodding, even if you're not, so that I'll move on. And then you can ask me afterwards and I'll try to further clarify. So I am going to kind of nuance that a little bit with this final point. And that is that to really own this promise of God being with you experientially, you have to play the long game. Meaning you have to, it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction to really own this promise. Okay? Take it from someone like King David in Psalm 37, 25 where he says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. This is the same David who, after having been anointed by Samuel to be the rightful king, spent a good portion of his life running for his life from King Saul, who was vindictive and wanting to take David out. Do you not think that David at some point probably felt like God was not with him or that he had forsaken him? This is the same David who, after he assumed the throne, Saul was no more and David's actually sitting on the throne of Israel, had one of his sons, Absalom, betray him, run him out of the kingdom, turn the kingdom against him, and once again David is fleeing for his life. Do you not think that there came a point in time where David wondered, God, where are you? Are you really with me? Have you forsaken me? And if you read his other Psalms, it's pretty apparent that that is something he wrestled with at times. But from the position of an old man, which he acknowledges here in this psalm, he could say with clarity and conviction, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Himself being included in that. Because again and again, God proved he had always been with David. But you have to play the long game. Now just to clarify, when David here speaks of, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, in case any of you are tempted to exclude you from that category of people. The righteous, first of all, are not those who are perfect. That's not what David is saying. There are those who are covered by the sacrificial blood of the perfect one. There are those who live for him. And you know what that looks like? It doesn't look like perfection, though we strive for it, the Bible calls us to. 
it looks like when we fail, we are quick to confess and repent, which means turn back to him, and then we are quickly back on his heels, following him once again. It also says the righteous here, but you know who the righteous are not? The righteous are not those whose lives are bereft of any kind of pain and suffering. In fact, the righteous often have acute suffering that they go through. And it may feel like God has abandoned them in those times, but the righteous are those who in those seasons cling by faith to this promise that he is with you, he is for you, and that he will never forsake his own. Many of us are here today and we need the encouragement of this promise that God is with you so badly. And nowhere did God prove this to us to be true more profoundly than on the cross. It really does always come back to the cross. As we think back on that scene, Jesus not only took his sin, our sin rather, upon himself because he was sinless so that we could be made holy. He not only took our shame upon himself so that we could be esteemed by God as worthy. But he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that those of us who by faith believe in him would never have to be forsaken by our God could always know his presence and could trust that he will never leave us or forsake us. So today, as you take communion, those of us who are here who are in Christ, who follow Christ, who claim this promise for ourselves, you can do so with confidence that even if you're in a season where you don't feel like God is with you, he is. He has not left or forsaken you. So you can cling wholeheartedly today to that promise And if you keep walking with him, you will be able to say with David when he was old, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise. Thank you that through Christ, we know with confidence that you are with us and will never leave us or forsake us. You demonstrated that even while we were still sinners, you wanted to draw near to us in the incarnation, and that even while we cried crucify him, you still wanted us to be near by substituting him in our place on the cross. Maybe this is the most foundational of your promises to us. It's what you've created us for. Lord, where we've been numb and callous to that reality, awaken in us a desire to know you, to be known by you, to be with you. And when that doesn't feel like that is true, oh Lord, fan into flame our faith that even if we don't feel it, it is true. Do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. You know the needs of those who are here today, Lord, precisely, accurately, acutely. Minister to each of them by the power of your Holy Spirit in the ways that they need. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.